Welcome again to All Saints. I'm Brian Douglas, one of the pastors here. Our senior pastor, Brad, has been on vacation the last few weeks, but he'll be back next Sunday. So you can look forward to, to hearing the real pastor speak next Sunday. <laughs> there was a guy uh, named Clement Volandingham who was a pretty well-known attorney. He was known in his home state of Ohio. He was known nationally. Uh, and he had unsuccessfully run for governor in Ohio. And he tried to kind of rise the political ranks without, without a lot of success. In 1871, he took on a case with a client who was accused of shooting someone in a bar fight. And Volandingham's theory, the, way, the, the, the counter-argument he was presenting was, my client didn't shoot him. The guy accidentally shot himself while drawing his own pistol. And he, he went on to demonstrate how this was possible by acting it out. And he grabbed the wrong pistol. And so he actually, while demonstrating that it's possible to shoot yourself while drawing a pistol, he accidentally shot himself and died in 1871. His client was exonerated. <laughs> the jury was convinced and then four weeks later, he was shot and killed in a gunfight. So, I don't know. Life, life, life is funny. We all know that. Death can be funny, too. Sometimes. We have entire genres of movies that fit into this category. Have you ever watched a dark comedy? Like, uh, one of my favorites is The Lady Killers. is a Coen Brothers film. And these, these villains are all trying to kill this old lady, and one by one they accidentally meet their own demise. It's, uh, it's funny, but it's a movie about death. And almost everybody in the movie dies. Death can be funny, but this passage today is deadly serious. And um, I'll say, death can only be funny if you're far away from it. Clement Volandingham's widow didn't think his death was funny. Um, and the closer you are to death, the more the reality of it strikes you, the more painful it is, the more difficult it is. And this, this commandment today, the sixth commandment, as we look through the Ten Commandments together, uh, this commandment today is about death. Hear the word of God. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not murder. Four words. You shall not murder. Will you join me in prayer? Thank you, God, our Father, for giving us the word. Help this word to change who we are, how we see ourselves, and most importantly, how we see you on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You shall not murder. You think like, that first generation of people, Moses comes down the mountain with the, with the Ten Commandments, and he's like, he's reading them along, have no other gods before me, keep the Sabbath day, honor your father and mother. He's reading them off, and everybody's like, whoa, that's, that's hard. And then he gets to number six, and he says, you shall not murder. And it's the shortest commandment. And everybody in, everybody in the room goes, whew, at least, at least that one's easy. Right? Have you murdered anybody? Me neither. Um... I might have done a lot of dumb stuff in my life, but I've never murdered someone. 
And so this commandment seems, on its, on its face, seems very easy. It doesn't seem relevant to normal, everyday life. Even more than that, it's, at some level, it's obvious. Because every culture on the face of the earth prohibits murder. Now, they might define murder in different ways. But there's no culture in history where you can just go and kill whoever you want, and everybody's like, yeah, cool, good on you, man. Um, this, here's, a, here's a quote from John Steinbeck's iconic novel, East of Eden. Look now. In all of history, men have been taught that killing of men is an evil thing not to be countenanced. Any man who kills must be destroyed because this is a great sin. Maybe the worst that we know. That's Steinbeck's take on it. Looks on the surface like the easiest commandment, and it's the shortest, but these four little words contain a lot of meaning. There's a lot here. So let's spend a couple minutes looking at what these four words mean. The, uh, the Hebrew word reshach, which is murder, uh, means both killing someone with violent force, malice of forethought in the, the language of our legal system, but it also covers uh, death by negligence, death by something that I could have prevented, but I didn't do. And so uh, it's, it's got a quite a broad meaning, and it opens itself up to a lot of opportunities. Even if, even if not everybody in the room here today is a murderer, we've all been negligent. We've all been careless. In 1985, the uh, Lifeguard Association of New Orleans celebrated that they had gone the entire year without a single drowning death in one of their pools. And so they decided to celebrate this fact by having a giant pool party. And someone drowned at the lifeguard pool party. This kind of, this kind, I mean, it's again, it's easy to laugh at death sometimes, but uh, that kind of negligence, that kind of carelessness Results uh, that results in the death of someone is uh, the kind of thing that this commandment is talking about. Not just harm by brute force, but other ways in which people are harmed. Bodily harm, first and foremost, but not just bodily. Harmed in other ways. If we have uh, a heart of harming other people, then we are brushing up against this commandment. We are at risk. We know that because if you've spent that much time around Christians or the church, you've probably heard some of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he describes the implications of each of the commandments, including this one. First example is in Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, of the, those of, said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment for murder. And here Jesus brings the whole thing closer to home. Jesus actually adds that you shouldn't even come to worship God until you've resolved your anger toward your brother. Obviously, the great biblical example of this is Cain and Abel, the second generation of humanity that that most mirrors this heart of murder. Cain kills Abel. Why does Cain kill Abel? It's not... Because Abel threatened him with bodily harm. 
It's not because Abel did something so horrible that Abel, need, you know, there's, the threat needed to be. No, there's no. There was a slight against Cain. Cain felt offended and he felt angry, and that, that anger led him to murder his brother. So, how often does our anger flare in result of uh, the way that we feel like we've been treated by others? A second example from the Sermon on the Mount. Later in Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard people say, An eye for an eye, or a tooth, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Have you ever heard anything so un-American as that? When I think of, when I think of here, listen to Jesus uh, describe his expectations for being slapped in the face. Um, yeah, well, that's not how we typically react to being slapped in the face. When I'm slapped in the face, uh, you know where that goes next. I actually slapped some, uh, one of the kids here earlier today, but it was for fun. An example of this would be Samuel or, honestly, any of the prophets of God in the, uh, in the Old Testament throughout centuries and centuries of the people of God, speaking directly to the people of God through the prophet. And he would send the one man, the prophet, to come and speak his word to his people. And what was the almost universal response to uh, the prophet when he spoke to God's people. Almost, without fail, every single time, the people effectively smacked him in the face, chased him out of town, condemned him, threatened him. He's coming, speaking the very word of God, and he's faced with being murdered as a result of that. And this is, uh, this is a pattern even amongst God's people. That when, when God says something that we don't like, it makes us angry. We don't react well to it all the time. Another example from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect there meaning perfect in love. Perfect in loving even your enemy. Even your enemy. Now, uh, it's easy to love those that we love. We take that for granted. But it's hard to love your enemy. A biblical example of that, of uh, someone who actually who did that, was uh, King David. In the, the psalm that we prayed this morning, it was the psalm of David when he was running away from King Saul. There are numerous times in the life of David in which he was being pursued, he was being attacked, he was being maligned, his reputation was being destroyed, uh, and he responded as Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 5. There are many other things Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that are relevant to the Sixth Commandment. He spoke about peacemaking, providing for others in need, treasuring different kinds of things, and judgment upon those 
uh, that will come upon what be us because of what we've done. Go home this afternoon and read the Sermon on the Mount. It's only three chapters. It won't take you long. Or read the, the letter of 1 John, in which the Apostle John is very pointed about how anger, hate, and murder affect our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Or look, at the, look in your bulletins at the, the two catechism questions that are listed after our text for this morning. Take those home and read those and see exactly how much is packed into these four brief words. So in the mind of God, this is much more complex than a simple binary safe commandment. Did you murder anybody? Nope. Okay, good. There's more to it than it would seem to indicate. And the more we look at it, the more we see ourselves in it, actually. In the cover of your bulletin, there's a, there's a, quote, a couple quotes, one from Agatha Christie, in which she says, yeah, some murderers are awfully nice people. And uh, then the, my favorite one is the Johnny Cash one, where he says, the beast in me, the beast in me is barely contained. God help the beast in me. We can look at this. We can hear Jesus' description of what murder is, and we can see ourselves in it. One of the best questions you can ask when it comes to the Ten Commandments is why. Why this commandment? Any of them. Why did God say this and not that? Why did he say, you shall do this, you shall not do that, instead of its opposite? Why, did he, why didn't he say, you shall disgrace your, your father and mother? You shall readily take the lives of those you don't like. You shall, thou shalt not be monogamous. Uh, take what you can and give nothing back. Uh, there's, there's, God could have said the opposite of any of these things. Why does he say, this is how I want you to live? He does it for a reason, and the reason is he's revealing himself. He's revealing himself in the commandments. When he says, honor your father and mother, he's trying to teach people how to have the kind of relation, to, to understand the relationship that he wants to have with us by modeling it in our human relationships. As we enter into his family, as we are his sons and daughters, he wants us to know what shape that takes, what that looks like. Why not adultery? Because God keeps his promises. And God is laser-focused on his people. Why not steal? Because God is a, a giver, not a thief. And he gives in abundance. Why not lie? Because God is truth. He loves truth, and everything he does is true. So what does the sixth commandment tell us about God? What does it tell us about who God is, and what he values, and what he does? God is the life giver. When God is present, there is life. When the Spirit of God shows up, dead things come alive again. When God speaks, the universe changes shape. We see this in Genesis 1. He takes the light and the darkness and he says, this is what you're going to do next. And that whole thing, that whole creation story, is built around life coming out of non-life. That which was 
formless and void becomes full and beautiful. And that's the pattern of how God works. When you can recognize the acts of God by that pattern. You can, rec- you can say this was a moment in which God acted because life came from death. Salvation came from condemnation. Order came out of chaos. Abundance came out of scarcity. God is at work in these things because that's the pattern of how he works. We can recognize him by his fingerprints. That's who he is. That's what he values. God values life-giving. God, I've come to give you life, Jesus said, and to give it to you in abundance, in fullness. It's the pattern of what he values. It's the pattern of what he does. So why should we obey the sixth commandment? Why should we listen to God's words, do not murder? We, we, should, we should follow this commandment because we are supposed to be God's image on earth. We are supposed to be reflecting him. So as he is the life giver, we are supposed to be life givers. Whatever is life taking does not come from God. It's, uh, it's the product of living in a sinful fallen world. And too often the, that problem is centered in us, in our own hearts, in our own anger. So the opposite of that is to be a life giver as God is a life giver. What are the practical implications of this for our lives? Is this a major problem? Is murder a major problem? It is. At first glance, it seems like no big deal. I'm not a murderer. But this, is this a major problem in human history? It is. You can't find an ear. When I've tried, maybe someone can, can help me out with this. I've tried to look back through human history and find a time in which there wasn't a war going on at some place on the globe. And I haven't been able to find one. There's always some kind of war going on. There's always some nation that's raging against nation and some person who's taking the life of another person. It's overwhelming sometimes. It's depressing sometimes. Sometimes we have to take a social media break just to detox ourselves from all the negative news. We have to stop watching TV for a while. We have to go on vacation just so that we get a little bit tuned out to sort of the chaos and the destruction that this world seems to major in. With Jesus' description of murder in mind, is this a major problem in our own personal history? Not just world human history, but in our own personal history. It is. All of us are guilty of being angry, uh, of being angry to the point where we actually wanted harm to fall on someone else. We can always turn it around, too, and look at it the other direction. What would it be like if everybody in the world lived consistently with this commandment? What would it be like if we all lived that way? What, if, what would be the difference in your life? Think back over the years. Uh, look ahead into the future. And think about what it would be like if there was no, none, zero whatsoever chance of physical harm that would befall you? What would that be like to live free from the threat of murder? 
Mark Furman, who was an LAPD detective, he said this about murderers. I dealt with people like this for 20 years. They will kill somebody and then go have chicken at KFC. You watch them eating chicken and drinking a beer after they just murdered three people. And it's, again, kind of, kind of a comical way of putting it. Um, but we, that's us. We are just as cold-blooded in the sense that, uh, here's an example. Uh, earlier this week, I was trying to get out of the house, and certain ones of my kids, which will go unnamed, were fighting, and it was just sort of ceaseless. And uh, I, just, I just blew up. I just ripped them. Just like that. Uh, and then I, then I immediately went out the door, got in my car, and went to a meeting at church. See, this is what we, you know, that's my KFC. Is like, hey, Brian, the pastor, just drove over here for, this, uh, for this, this meeting on Wednesday evening. And five minutes ago, he just nuked his kids. That's what we do. That's our reaction to things. Um, I don't have to fill in a lot of stories there because I know you've got thoughts of coworkers, family, relatives, kids, parents, cousins, friends, former friends. Um, I know it's... I know it's happened to all of us, and I know it will happen again. And that's why we need to be considering this command to not murder, because this is, this is going to continue to be a problem in our lives. We are, we are cold-blooded in subtle ways. We are cold-blooded in subtle ways. We, um, anything, anything that dehumanizes another person is murder. Anything that says you are not worth caring about. You are, here's the level of humanity, and somewhere down here is you. And we do that in a host of ways. Anything that dehumanizes is the heart of murder. Uh, Ignoring the person in front of us. If you're in a, a store, I don't know. Anything in, in normal life, your coworkers crying, and uh, well, I don't know. There's any number of scenarios in which we're like, you know what? Ah, it would be easier for me to just not. You know, I'm just going to pretend like that never happened, and I'm, it's just be easier for me to go over here, ignoring someone, treating a person like a toy or a trophy. Having an attitude toward them that they exist, you exist only for my use and pleasure. That's dehumanizing. You're an object. You're a thing. You're like my puppy. And I can pet you when I want to pet you, and I can say, go outside when I don't want you around. Ghosting. Just disappearing from somebody's life. Ghosting. Just, you know, I was messaging, we were friends, and then I just never heard from them again. Ghosting certainly can be dehumanizing uh, and, and the same heart as murder. Here's another one that, you know, I have to watch out for is when I'm driving and then I do something that's sort of like, I call it Miami driving, which is, involves uh, more motion than Idaho drivers are used to. Um, and maybe somebody in the next car is angry at me Instead of saying, like, oops, sorry, you know, I just pretend like they don't exist. And I'm like, ha, 
And I'm thinking, ha, see, I'm not even going to give you the satisfaction of a response. Uh, you can honk your horn and wave at me and do whatever you want to do, but I just, like, what? There's a person over there? That is dehumanizing. Treating, saying, I don't care about you because I don't like you. That's dehumanizing. That's the heart of murder. Neglect. We already talked about this. Neglect of another person. Jesus says, if, you're, if you give water to someone who's thirsty, if you help anyone out, you're, is it the least of these is the phrase he uses, then you're serving me. Well, what's the opposite of that? If I ignore, if I neglect the least of these, then I'm disserving Jesus. Defending ourselves. Okay, you can't talk about murder without talking about defending yourselves. Defending our, and that's a broader topic than I'm going to take time to talk much about today. Defending ourselves is not necessarily murder, but doing so in a way that threatens or takes an innocent human life is definitely murder. And uh, for that, repentance probably needs to happen on both a personal and a national level. Here's another one. Subtle. You might think it falls under one of the other commandments. It does. But uh, the pervasive use of pornography in our culture is dehumanizing. It's, It's looking at another human being and saying, I don't care about anything related to your soul. You are a physical object, and you exist for me in this moment, and I'm disinterested. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to know you. I don't want to commit to you. I don't want to be in relationship with you. Uh, I'm just going to use you as an object for my own use and pleasure. So there's a lot of ways in which this trickles down into everyday life. First, read: Do not murder. But when you actually process this down, using the descriptions of Scripture, the way Jesus describes it, uh, it trickles down into normal life in ways that affect all of us. So I could finish with this. I could finish with, so therefore, don't do it. Don't murder. It's pretty simple, right? Don't do it. And you could say, well, okay, I'm going to leave this room today, and I'm going to... I'm going to murder less. I'm going to work on my murder rate. Um, I'm going to improve my murder stats in some way. Uh, But there's a problem with that, with that as the closing line. If I say, okay, don't do it. Go from here and implement that in your lives. There's a problem with that. It's already too late. We're all already guilty. So I want to finish with this. This simple idea. Jesus died to save murderers. That's the good news. Jesus died to save murderers. And he demonstrated that very graphically at his own death. Think about how many people in that crowd who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We don't know how many, but I'm sure that some of the people in that crowd later were like, oh, you're the Savior. And they believed in him. And they followed after him. There's a whole generation of people who put Jesus to death. And he died for them. He died to forgive the murderers. So are you a murderer? Don't be afraid. Jesus can forgive even that. 
He can forgive even murder. While we were yet murderers, Christ died for us. And then from Jesus' own example, we learn that all human life is worth preserving. All human life is worth sticking up for. It's worth fighting for. It's worth protecting. And we, the people of God, should be the leaders when it comes to valuing and protecting human life. Humans are not only made in God's image, they are the objects of Jesus' love. So often I tell myself, particularly when I'm, when I'm not doing particularly well on a, on a day, I think to myself, this one thing I know is that the God who made me loves me. He died for me. He knows me. He likes me. He talks to me. He listens to me. He is with me even to the end of the age. That's the commitment that he's made. Is that true of every human being? Does the God who made them love them? Does he know them? Does he speak to them? Is he with them? Is that true of every human being? Yes. Yes. Even the sick and the aged? Yes. Even the awkward and the ugly? Yes. Even the unborn baby? Yes. Even in cases of rape and incest? Yes. Maybe you ask. Maybe today you ask. Even me? Does Jesus love me that way? Even in my depression and anxiety? Even in my failure and my disgrace? Even in my pain and frustration and desperation? Is, is my life even worth living? Jesus says yes. It is. You. Even you. Jesus says yes. I try to remember that whenever I meet someone. But no matter how rough around the edges they might be, there's the image of God right there. In some way, it's preserved in, I think, every last human being. We can see the beauty of God's character in every person. Even me? Yeah, especially you. We read from Romans 8 earlier in the service. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Listen, if a guy with a sword can't separate you from the love of Jesus, right? If the whole world being against you can't separate you from the love of Jesus, no pain, no suffering, no failure, no nothing can separate you from his love. As the Apostle Paul put it, we read this earlier in the service, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the heart of God toward us and that is to be our heart toward each other. All of us. Even the lamest loser that you know. Jesus loves them. He loves you. And so do we, his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please make the love of Christ deep and real here at All Saints. And wherever we go from here, help us to be the kind of life-giving, life-valuing people that you've called us to be. In Christ's name, amen.